so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. What's a good Marky Mark song? Does he sing that good vibration song? Yes. That's okay. So I was going to open it up singing you that. Definitely should. Got that good vibration. You got that sweet sensation. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me for a very lively, exciting podcast are my co hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. As my college roomie used to say, good morning, good morning, it's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. Well, there you have it, folks. It's a <laughs> it's a good Thursday morning, and we are on a roll. And uh, sitting next to Lindsay is our just unbelievably dapper colleague, Brent Leatherwood. Hello. We we have certainly we have certainly given our colleague Mark quite a bit of material to choose from <laughs> yeah. uh, for uh, this week's cold what, open. What do you call that? I don't cold know. Open? Yeah, it's yeah. better cold, than last week. Saturday night. We were boring, as one of my friends' little girls used to like to say. Last week we were boring? I felt like we, it felt a little boring in oh, here. Oh, I thought we had but, a pretty raucous time. But okay. Anyway, we'll try not to let you down, people. We're excited about doing this podcast because, well, we've had a lot of laughs leading up to doing the podcast. And that's better because, you know, it's not always the case. So, in any case, Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC's been talking about this week. Well, thank you, Josh. So, Brent and our colleague, Chelsea patterson Sobolik just got done hosting an event that I hope that you will check out, and I'm sure Brent is going to mention it in his section, so I won't take that from him, Baptists and the court. But the reason I wanted to bring that up is because Chelsea's kicking off our article highlights today with one about the Supreme Court. It's titled, Four Important SCOTUS Cases for Life and Religious Liberty, Looking Back and Looking Ahead. And what we wanted to do in this article is to provide you a look back at last term and uh, show you two important rulings that the Supreme Court made that had great implications for religious liberty and then look ahead to next term. So when is the when does the term begin for the Supreme Court, Brent? Uh, October, first Monday in October. Okay. So in the fall, there are going to be two cases that could have some far-reaching implications for the issues of life and religious liberty. And these things are so important to us because, as Chelsea says at the beginning of the article, the ERLC engages our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the public square in order to protect religious liberty and promote human flourishing. And one of the ways that we do this is by advocating for these things before the Supreme Court. Chelsea did a fantastic job giving a rundown on these four cases. She provided some resources for further reading so that you could continue to educate yourself about these cases. So whether you know a lot about the Supreme Court, you have have interest in it, or you don't, I would encourage you to check out this article. 
especially so that you can be praying for the upcoming term of the Supreme Court and for these rulings to take a favorable turn for the sake of life and religious liberty. Next up, we have an explainer that we were eager to get to titled, What's Going On in Cuba with Protests and New Sanctions? If you have been following different accounts on social media or even watching the news, you have seen thousands of Cubans taking to the streets in a historic anti-government protest. And they're demanding change after 62 years of communist rule. The communist Government is facing a major challenge to its authority uh, for the first time, as the article says, without a member of the Castro family in charge. And what this resource is able to tell us is that there are three main drivers behind this protest. The COVID-19 pandemic, which we understand how that has just turned everything upside down, internet access, and the economic crisis. And another thing of note that we wanted to highlight in this article is that our president, Joe Biden, under the Global Magnitsky Act, issued sanctions for Cuba. And under this act, these sanctions are a powerful tool to promote human rights abroad. It's a, it's a way to pressure foreign government leaders and entities to change their behavior. If, like me, you didn't know much about this history because you had not quite paid attention to it, I would encourage you um, to go on our site, check out this article. It is extremely helpful. It'll also help you to know ways uh, to pray for the people of Cuba. And finally, I wanted to highlight an article by our very own co-host, Josh Wester. It's titled, Why We Need a Comprehensive Approach to Ending Abortion. This article, to me, is invaluable, especially because there has been a lot of conversation around the approach to ending abortion. This year at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a resolution brought to the floor and it was about two approaches to ending abortion, the abolitionist camp or the incrementalist camp. And instead of taking away his thunder, I'm actually gonna ask Josh to step in here and tell us a little bit about these terms and why it's so important. Yes, yeah, so let me just say a couple things. First of all, I appreciate Lindsay for uh, just staying on my case to get this article written because I have been on a writing hiatus, which has been really wonderful, but you know, it's time to get uh, back in the saddle. So this article really does try to explain these two camps and, and where I personally fall uh, in this conversation because here's, here's the most important thing. Anytime you're having a fight uh, or a disagreement with people that that you fundamentally agree with, it's important to stop first and acknowledge the fact that we are all Christians chasing the very same goal for the very same reasons. We are all Christians who want to see abortion ended, not just in our lifetimes, but right away. And so there are these two camps that exist inside the pro-life movement uh, that are fighting to end abortion. And so the there's the incrementalist camp and there's the abolitionist camp. I'll do abolition first. Uh, abolitionists are those who call for the immediate end of abortion. And the first thing to say about that is that's excellent, right? That's exactly what we should all call for. But but abolitionists tend to view any measure short of the immediate end of abortion, whether that's at the state level or at the federal level, as compromise. Well, the incrementalist position, while affirming exactly what abolitionists say, that we want to see abortion ended immediately, say, but we will also support any measure to save any life that we can. We are open to laws that would accomplish abolition, but we will also use any tool or resource on the table. So that includes things like heartbeat bills, which you're all familiar with, uh, things like uh, pain-capable bills, uh, waiting periods, informed consent laws, all kinds of things uh, that the 
tools that the pro-life movement has at its disposal to make it more difficult uh, for people to pursue elective abortions because we want to place as many barriers and obstacles in people's way as we can for, for them uh, making the choice to take the life of their child. And so we're, we're after and supporting laws that protect lives. And that's the incrementalist position is we have the same goal as the abolitionists, but we're able to take and we're willing to take every single step we can as we are marching toward that goal of seeing abortion ended forever. And so that's that's what I tried to cover here in this article is, is why I am I do consider myself to be an incrementalist, although I think that's a pretty bad label uh, for what I think is the right position. I don't think it's a bad label. Incrementalism is just taking any available ground you can get. And in this context, that means saving one additional life. Like that's that's important. The, so, the, the only reason I say bad label is just because I, I'm afraid some people hear incrementalism and they think that we want it to go slow. Right. We do not want it to go slow. We would like it to, to go into warp speed and, and happen right now. I wish it happened, you know, in 1973. Exactly. But no, we it, are fighting for this. I would just tell people that we, those of us, and I would include myself in that camp, who, who proudly say that we are incrementalists, we are fervently grabbing a hold of Every opportunity that comes uh, to gain ground when it comes to abortion policy in order to save even one additional life is worth uh, gaining that ground and and just continuing to chisel away uh, at the abortion industry and the the uh, legal abortion infrastructure uh, that that is out there. And so um, so yeah. So I don't I don't think it's a a, a bad uh, label at all. Uh, the one of the other uh, pieces that you highlighted, Lindsay, was the piece about Cuba, and I think this is really important because you know there's a number of folks out there, particularly in our audience, that are asking questions like, "Hey, wh- what is going on in in Cuba?" And um, it, it's a multifaceted thing, but we should all come down with to this: this is a repressive regime in Cuba. And they are cracking down on individuals out there uh, in, in Cuba who are trying to freely express themselves. And that is one of those fundamental rights that travels right along with uh, free speech and uh, religious freedom. And we we should care about that. And, and so that's why I thought it was really important at the, at the end of this piece, we – talked about the Global Magnitsky Act, and that was a piece of legislation that that we were supportive of that was passed by Congress in 2016 to give uh, the executive branch and specifically the president the ability to uh, place sanctions on regimes that are cracking down on these fundamental freedoms, and in particular, uh, human rights and, you know, as Christians, as we would talk about it, human dignity. And, and so that's why we need to be paying attention to this. That's why we need to care about what is going on there. And that is why we need to be advocates uh, for these regimes in other areas of the world that don't respect uh, fundamental human freedoms to, to recognize them. So it was a great piece and very timely. Well, and all of these pieces highlight the privilege that it is as a country, as individuals, but as a country— to be able to stand up for the rights of the vulnerable, to be able to stand up and use our voices for those in the case of the unborn who do not have a voice yet to use to speak up for their lives and and to be able to stand up and speak for those who are oppressed in regimes around the country and proclaim the dignity that they inherently have and the treatment that they're worthy of. 
It makes me excited to look at our culture section today and see what all we're going to be covering and what we're going to be talking about. But for now, Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. So Brent, uh, besides Baptist in the court, tell us what's going on. All right. Thanks for that, Josh. So we begin this week with, you know, a lot of times we, we kind of pick important news stories uh, out of, you know, whatever culture is talking about. I would submit that, honestly, this this may have been the biggest story around the globe because it just seemed like when it broke, it was everywhere on every news outlet. And that is the story uh, revolving around Simone Biles. So uh, we go to ESPN for this first piece. So we go to ESPN for this first story, and they write, Gymnastics superstar and defending Olympic champion Simone Biles has withdrawn from Thursday's individual all-around competition at the Tokyo Games to focus on her mental well-being. The decision comes a day after Biles removed herself from the team final following one rotation on vault. She cited her mental health as the reason when speaking to the media following the competition. Quote, after further medical evaluation, Simone Biles has withdrawn from the final individual all-round competition at the Tokyo Olympic Games in order to focus on her mental health, USA Gymnastics said in a statement on Wednesday. We wholeheartedly support Simone's decision and applaud her bravery in prioritizing her well-being. Her courage shows yet again why she is a role model for so many. USA Gymnastics said Biles will be evaluated before deciding if she will participate in next week's individual events. Biles qualified for the finals on all four apparatuses, something she did not even do during her five-medal haul at the Rio de Janeiro Games in 2016. Vault and floor exercise, the first two individual events, are scheduled for Sunday. Biles won gold in both events in Rio. She will be replaced by Jade Carey, who finished ninth in qualifying, which ordinarily would be enough to get her, but because there is a two-person limit for each team, uh, she wasn't able to, to get in. The media outlet slate, which ordinarily we would uh, link uh, to the news outlets that that we cite, but uh, there was some questionable language in the in the report, so we're not going to link to that one, but we will give them credit. So the media outlet slate reported that Biles said this, at the end of the day, she explained, it's like we want to walk out of here and not be dragged out of here on a stretcher. I just don't trust myself as much as I used to. She mentioned other reasons for sitting out too, citing a little injury to my pride, after her vault. And after the performance I did, I just didn't want to go on. It should be noted that despite the shock of everything that occurred, the remaining uh, U.S. women's gymnastics uh, team members went on to have a very gutsy performance without Biles and earned a silver medal, which honestly is is pretty incredible. So we all kind of witnessed this. Um, what are your thoughts? Because everyone seems to, to be thinking about and talking about Simone Biles. Well, I have a couple of thoughts about this. At first, I thought, oh, man, I want us to win the gold at the Olympics, you know, part of national pride. But then I saw a tweet by Rachel Denhollander, as you know, which she she was a gymnast. She was one of the first to speak out about Larry Nasser, the former U.S. gymnastics doctor, a serial pedophile, just terrible, awful. And she responded to a tweet with a picture of Carrie Strug that many people were— posting around on social media in opposition to Simone Biles choosing to step out. And she said, back then, Carrie Strug, gymnast, what was happening, you know, she she did her vault and she hurt her ankle and then she had to retire from gymnastics after that. And back then, 
the emphasis was put on winning at all costs. The the female and her health was not first and foremost in people's minds. And then what was so haunting about that picture is that Carrie Strug, in, with her injury, was being ushered off of that platform into the arms of Larry Nasser, who we know was abusing her and abused so many girls. And Rachel Den Hollander was just saying, what Simone Biles just did is what many of us fought for for years. It's what we've been looking forward to happening in U.S. gymnastics for years. And of course, I've not quoted that correctly. You'll have to go look for the exact quote. But it was just, it was really poignant to see that right now that these women and these young girls in many instances, instead of being products and and looking at their worth based on performance, they're treated as human beings and their health and their safety and their well-being is put first instead of some gold medal that nobody's going to remember in a, you know, in a hundred years. The other thing I wanted to say is that it's less serious, uh, is that sounds like she has a case of the tipsies they were talking about. Some of the gymnasts on the Today Show this morning were talking about the tipsies. The twisties. Twisties, (laughs) not the tipsies. (laughs) Josh was looking at me like, huh? (laughs) I thought that sounded wrong. (laughs) She had a case of the tipsies. She's having a little bit too much fun there in Tokyo. (laughs) No, okay, yes. In other sports vernacular, vernacular is, you might know as the yips, where you just get this mental hang up and you just can't perform the normal tasks that you were able to do. And I used to be a cheerleader and that happened to me after I injured my ankle one time. And my toe touches, I can say now, were awesome. Uh, But after I hurt my ankle, I couldn't do jumps the same. So I had a permanent case of the yips. The very last thing I'm going to say, because I'm talking too long, is that uh, by Simone Biles dropping out, she made way for Suni Lee to be able to get the gold in the all-around, which when we're recording, um, that hasn't actually aired in primetime yet. But to me, that's that's sacrificing for your team. And it's incredible, the opportunity that provided her teammates. Yeah, Lindsay, I think you covered it. It feels like every person in the world has offered their own hot take, social commentary on what happened with Simone. Uh, look, we talked before the Olympics. She's just amazing. She's done things that no athlete in her field has ever done before. And it's something to, uh, you know, it's, it's a marvel. And so I, I've never read one of my own tweets on the podcast before that I can remember, but I'll just read you my tweet, which sums up my thought. I said, if the Simone Biles deal or deal has revealed anything, it's the stunning capacity of so many people to pronounce judgment over a person and a situation from which they couldn't possibly be further removed or more ignorant. Just pray for her. And the truth is, oh my gosh, as soon as we started watching the pylon taking place, all I could think about was these people have no idea what they're talking about. We don't. We don't know what it's like to be an Olympic athlete. You don't know what it's like to be doing something that potentially threatens your life uh, and for, you know, the eyes of the world to be on you. Who can imagine what that feels like? And so uh, the kind of harsh commentary that has been, oh, she's soft or I can't believe she did this or she needed to put, you know, country first or go for the gold or or whatever. Uh, Man, all of that is just it's just noise and nonsense to me. At the the end of the day, uh, these athletes, uh, they do incredible unbelievable things in order to prepare to represent their country at the Olympics. It is is something they dream of forever. And to think that anyone would just lightly walk away from that after a career spent in preparation, it is just, it's just insane to think that that's, that's some kind of accurate portrayal of what happened. So God bless her. Exactly. God bless her. And, you know, I'll just add several people out there were commenting, you know, with other examples in sports were 
people push through things. Well, you know, like when Kurt Schilling had the bloody sock game in the baseball playoffs, the difference there is that there wasn't a chance that Kurt Schilling was going to potentially snap his neck mm-hmm. uh, because he he lost you know touch with with where he was uh, as he was pitching. I, I mean, these are these aren't apples and apples comparisons, folks. And so I, I I was encouraged to see a number of Christian voices out there just in humility, just you know thanking Simone uh, because she is <laughs> let's. Let's not forget this. She's the most decorated gymnast of all time. Uh, so she's actually already proven that she is amazing. Uh, and so uh, she doesn't – and that's the other thing. None of these athletes owe us right. anything as as viewers. Like that's – there was such an entitlement. And, and there was entitlement from people who, who, who say that they are Christian voices that were criticizing her. Like how entitled are you? And I don't find entitlement uh, anywhere in Scripture – uh, that I read. And so I appreciate you both uh, saying that. All right. Moving on from the Olympics and coming back to the States. Whoa. Breaking news. Bipartisanship has broken out in the U.S. Senate. Whoa. So the Wall Street Journal is reporting this. A bipartisan group of senators struck an agreement on a roughly $1 trillion infrastructure package Wednesday after grinding months of talks, hammering out enough details to propel the deal past its first procedural hurdle just hours later. The Senate voted 67 to 32 to begin consideration of the bill above the 60 required and reversing a failed effort a week earlier when many specifics of the deal were still under negotiation. Republican negotiators said Wednesday they now have enough confidence in the details of the agreement to allow it to move forward. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell backed the motion. Negotiators cast the agreement and vote as proof that bipartisanship was still possible in a deeply divided Washington. Lawmakers have for years tried and failed to put together a bipartisan agreement on the issue. Senators Rob Portman of Ohio, a Republican, and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, a Democrat, have led this across-the-aisle effort. It even sparked an op-ed by Josh's home state Republican Senator Tom Tillis to publicly thank Sinema for her work. So, y'all, my question is, can this bipartisan moment possibly last? Well, let's just start by saying it's actually infrastructure week. (laughs) Yeah, it is. After all those promises At and long failures of, of Infrastructure Week, it is actually here. That's a that's a reference from, gosh, several 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 of the last years. There's been multiple Infrastructure Weeks that have not uh, have not materialized no. or put forth any infrastructure. So here we go. So yeah, I mean it's huge, right? Like we want government to be complex and complicated. We want things to move slowly. Like the U.S. Senate is supposed to be the place where temperatures go to cool and bills go to die. But that doesn't mean we don't want them to do anything ever. And obviously something like infrastructure is a thing that it's not ideological. It's just a necessity. It, it, it facilitates American life. And so, yeah, I don't – will this happen again? Only time will tell. But it would be good if, you know, we could – turn down the rancor and animosity and try to like respect each other and work toward consensus, like what government is supposed to be about. That'd be great. Well, the the Biden White House was uh, saying immediately after the vote that this was uh, affirmation of the the president wanting uh, to, to work across the aisle to craft policy. And look, this isn't a comment on the policy itself. Lots of reasonable folks could come down in many different directions on uh, the wisdom of passing an infrastructure bill, the need of it, et cetera. Uh, but I just thought it was 
it was good to see after after talking a few weeks ago about the division in our country. It, it was just good to see our leaders uh, coming together, uh, even if it's a fleeting moment, uh, to to try and, and craft policy and and move a solution uh, forward. And so uh, I should note that the prospects uh, for this legislation over in the House are unknown at this point. So this this bipartisan moment uh, could, in fact, uh, be very, very fleeting. All right, so next, remember just a few weeks ago when we were all feeling pretty good about uh, COVID and America's response to it with the vaccines? Well, things are starting to get serious again because of the Delta variant. NBC News reports this. After months of decline, cases of COVID-19 infection are once again rising around the country. Data shows that the biggest increases are in states that are lagging behind in vaccinations. Nationwide, the four-week COVID case count has more than doubled as of Monday from the previous four weeks, according to NBC News tally. While cases are rising everywhere because of higher transmission levels of the Delta variant, the steepest increases have been in the South. And in the Southeast, where Florida, Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina are dealing with the biggest outbreaks in the nation. Dr. Brian Strom, Chancellor of the Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences in New Jersey, told NBC News that unvaccinated individuals infected with the Delta variant have more than 1,000 times as many viral particles in their respiratory systems as those infected by the original strain. That just shows uh, how much it has morphed. The available COVID vaccines offer strong protection against becoming severely ill with the Delta variant, Strom said, but unvaccinated people are at extreme risk. He said, quote, the Delta variant is dramatically more contagious and vaccinations the level of vaccinations have petered out. The net effect is that this would become a disease on the unvaccinated, and that is what has happened. In response to this, some entities are taking a more hands-on approach. Both Google and The Washington Post are going to require employees to get the vaccine before returning to work. And actually, just before we got on air, the city of Washington, D.C. Uh, is now instituting an indoors uh, mask requirement. And CNN reports this, instead of merely asking Americans to get vaccinated, the president on Thursday is set to take his first step towards requiring it. Officials said the administration was still finalizing details of the announcement, including how it might be implemented across the sprawling federal bureaucracy. It is not expected to apply to the military. So that's a that's a quite a bit on the on the COVID front, y'all. Uh, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that the refrain from us is just going to be uh, continued appeals to people to get vaccinated. And I saw something the other day that said the Pfizer, uh, you know, Pfizer is exploring a booster shot, which could hopefully help boost even further immunity for the Delta variant. Uh, but we're talking about a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, you're in much more danger. And I've talked to some folks uh, just in the last couple of weeks who have had uh, what is probably the Delta variant, and they have really, really struggled. Uh, people who who were not vaccinated, young, old, it, it is indiscriminate, and it is really bad. And so, you know, you you don't want this. You don't want this to happen to you. And I don't want to wear a mask anymore. So that's, you know, that's the other side of this is I think that, you know, those people who are vaccinated are, are very uh, I think they're right to be frustrated by the idea if you live in D.C. and you're vaccinated that you'd be required to wear a mask indoors. Like this is the reason we developed the vaccines uh, to mitigate the effects of the virus. And so the best thing that we could say is, look, please get vaccinated. If you have questions about it, talk to your doctor about it and um, and consider. I, I, I did see uh, recently that the most important um, factor for people who are you know vaccine hesitant 
is just the person they trust the most is their local physician. And so I promise your doctor would like to talk to you about it. Uh, or the people around you who are maybe vaccine hesitant, uh, encourage them to talk to their doctors. Well, on the other hand, as Brent and I were talking earlier before we started recording, we're over a year in or out from our last, uh, what from the beginning of the pandemic. This is still relatively new. It's not like we are 100 years out from the flu. So we're still discovering things about this. There is still information that changes in real time. And there is still so much that is unknown. Uh, the other thing is, because people have not been vaccinated, COVID is mutating. So we've got this Delta variant. If people are not enough people are not vaccinated, we'll have another variant. And the variants act differently than the one we were vaccinated against. And while the vaccines protect us from severe illness, it doesn't mean that people who are vaccinated can't get infected uh, by the different variants because they have mutated. And I don't know what the studies will show. This is this is new and the surge of Delta is new, but I do know that our healthcare workers are facing uh, a very real crisis as hospitals are filled up again, as people don't have beds, as they are overwhelmed. Uh, and so we need to be praying for them and and we need to be, as Christians, acting like the adults in the room, as one of our coworkers said, just doing what it is that we can to help mitigate this based on our current, albeit uh, incomplete, understanding of COVID and what this pandemic is going to continue to look like. Well, and I think it bears mentioning in this this last part. So uh, across the country, multiple cities, when I mean, we talked about Washington, D.C., and, and some towns are starting to re-implement masking for indoor activities. And look, there's, there's a number of churches uh, that are ministering in those contexts. And I just thought this might be a helpful moment uh, to pause and, and think about our pastors, and, and what they're going through. Um, and recently, a friend of the RLC, uh, Pastor Ronnie Parrott, uh, also over in North Carolina. Apparently, this is just our North Carolina uh, podcast. But Dr. Parrott said this, pray for pastors as they re-enter the mask or no mask arena. Many suffered through round one, while others didn't make it. Now, as many are trying to navigate through the vaccination debate, here we are with more mass guidelines that will be highly politicized. Pray for your pastor. And I'm so thankful that he just thought to, to share that on social media because, gosh, it's such a relevant reminder. And I would just say this, like, can we all resolve, like, us here in this room, folks listening uh, to the podcast, like, let's resolve not to be one of those church members that aims criticism or hot takes or our thoughts <laughs> to our, our pastor on something like this that is in many ways largely out of his and the the church staff like it's it's largely out of their control right like so I, this isn't a comment on look if you're if you're against whatever uh when it comes to mitigation efforts against covid like take that up with local health experts and and local elected officials your pastor, in all likelihood, is, is just trying to work with and partner with, as we have continually put forth uh, at the RLC during this this season of COVID, just trying to partner with these folks and do the best uh, that he can 
to follow local guidelines, uh, to give feedback from local guidelines, and to protect the congregation uh, that, that God has privileged uh, him to lead. And even more than that, protect the vulnerable within the congregation, many that that many of us don't even know about. There are, there are folks in our midst that we just don't know who are particularly susceptible uh, to this. And so the pastor's just dealing with all that. And, and so please don't put your pastor uh, through just some of the things that, that have gone on out there in this, in this season where we're all just trying to think to do the best that we can. And uh, so I'm just, I'm particularly mindful of pastors right now. They've dealt with a lot over the last year, crazy pandemic, uh, civil strife, uh, a, a political season that was just absolutely wild. And so um, folks, just, just let your pastor know you're praying for him. And, and thanking him for, for his wisdom and guidance and doing the best that he can. That's really well said, Brent. Pray for your pastor. It's hard. It's a hard time. And everyone has an opinion about what they should be doing. And be gracious to each other. That's right. <laughs> As brothers and sisters, yeah. just be gracious to one another. Uh, don't get revved up uh, and destroy relationships and the unity that the Lord intends for us in the body of Christ. It's not worth it, and it's a terrible witness to the world, and it's it's something that we're falling into the trap of in many ways right now as believers, and we need the Lord's help to to turn back from that. Okay, so uh, it was certainly a news-filled week. But Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. Well, all I can really think about is the Olympics. So I, I don't really have much else that I'm paying attention to. That and COVID stuff, because I'm trying to figure out what in the world me and my family need to be doing right now in this season. Uh, so I would encourage you to go and you can have a free account. So if you pay for cable and you have NBC, you can have a free account on Peacock, which is their new, I don't even know what it is, their new streaming program where they're trying to get you to pay $5 a month for the premium content. But you can go there. You can watch the highlights and the replays because I'm not able to watch all of the Olympic events during the day or even in the evening. So I'd encourage you to go there, um, watch the replays, and you can watch some of the uh, interviews and see all the exciting moments. I love it. I love it. It just gives me all the feels during the Olympic season. We've waited so long, and we'll have to wait only three more years this next time, not four. Uh, But Peacock is where you need to go. Sign up for that. It's free. And then you can end your account after that if you want to. You're like that little girl in the ad that's running during the Olympics that gets in front of the TV and then pretends to be a maestro when the Olympic theme music is coming on. For sure. Well, I thought you were going to say pretends to be an athlete. No, no, no. You're not an athlete. But you you are. You're you're like a, you're you're more like a maestro with the Olympic music. Are you, (laughs) are you trying to tell people that you're an athlete? No, no, I'm just saying it just gives me so much pride, makes me feel like I can do more than I'm able act- to actually do. Makes yeah. me, it just gives me all the feels. So. I, I feel like you'd be more of a winter Olympian. <laughs> Is it because I'm so wa- pasty white? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you'd be a summer Olympian because a it's summer 100 Olympian. degrees here in Nashville today oh and gosh, Brent is it celebrating great? it. Isn't it great? Something is not right with this him. This is the first time, I mean, just incidentally, this is the first time since Ju- July of 2012 that we will have hit triple digits. That's Is that what your lunchroom is, Brent? No, but it's time for that 
streak to be broken. But my lunchroom actually is something that you mentioned earlier. I'll take that segue. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it is the online event that we did. Um, it's called Baptists and the Court. And it was a review uh, that we did of recent Supreme Court decisions. And it featured our own colleague, uh, Chelsea Sobolik from our Washington, D.C. office, as well as Kristen Wagner, uh, who's general counsel at uh, ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, and Monte Alvarado uh, from our, our friends over at Beckett. And it, it, what an informative and enlightening conversation, very engaging, uh, lots of really good information shared. And I was just, I'll tell you this, I left the conversation feeling good about the state of religious liberty in America and in American jurisprudence. Uh, and at the same time, realizing like, hey, we can't get complacent in it. Uh, there are still these, you know, challenges that crop up out there. Uh, so we we need to be, continue to be vigilant. And that's what we will do. That's what we'll certainly continue doing at the RLC, but as well as these other organizations that uh, it, we are so privileged to be able to work alongside and and just be in this movement together, this pro-life movement and religious freedom movement. And um, so, yeah, that that event, uh, we're going to turn it around. It was a live event. Uh, we'll turn it around and make it uh, accessible to anybody that, that couldn't watch it today live. But it was uh, it was a really good event. Man, those are good lunchrooms. You guys are putting me to shame right now. So I'll just say uh, shout out to our interns. So our summer interns uh, are wrapping up their time with us here at the URLC. And uh, today I got to do my final Q&A with them. We've been walking through my, – my involvement usually looks like uh, teaching them a Bible study. We would go through the Gospel of Matthew, and I love doing that. I've done it a bunch of times now with our interns. It's always a lot of fun. I also lead the ethics training that they go through. And uh, today we just did a final Q&A to talk about any things that they were interested in. And one of the things we ended up talking about briefly uh, was how to think. And which How to Think is a book by Alan Jacobs. Uh, it's absolutely worth reading. It's very, very short. I think if you're if you're a listener and you're not familiar with it, you're probably wondering why would I read a book about thinking? I do it all day long. Uh, here's the thing. Thinking is a thing we all do, but we don't do it self-consciously often. We don't think about all the things uh, that shape our thought and influence the decisions that we make or even the way that we see certain things. And so uh, reading that book is really helpful because it just kind of, it can kind of pull back the veil in a sense and help us to see, help us to see things that we don't realize at first that influence our thought or, or make us, uh, make us see the world a certain way. So uh, my lunchroom this week is just the resource uh, to recommend How to Think by Alan Jacobs and also to encourage you, if you know someone uh, who is a college student uh, or a young professional that would be interested in participating in our uh, internship program, we would absolutely love uh, love for them to consider that opportunity and to connect with them. So you can do that at our website, urlc.com slash internships, and it's a great way to uh, get more connected with us here at the URLC. I've heard about that book, Josh, uh, and I need to put it on my list. I, I uh, After our uh, podcast today, which Mark is going to make sound really, really good on my end, I definitely need some help thinking and or talking. I had a case of the twisties, not to be confused. Confused. <laughs> not to be confused with the tipsies. <laughs> And I second you, Josh. Our interns are incredible. It's always such a joy to get to interact with them, to get to benefit from their work and the way that they serve us and they serve you as our listeners and those who visit our site. And if you know anybody of that age, that college age, who is interested in the, the kinds of things that we advocate for, we would be so grateful if you would send them our way. 
Well, that's going to do it for the show today. As always, we want to say thanks so much for listening. It is such a joy to hang out with you each and every week as we walk through what's going on at the ERLC and around the world. If you like the podcast and want to help us spread the word, please consider going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. Uh, But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back next week with more content. Thank you.